This is a news laundry podcast and you're listening to NL Hafta. Angrez apna lagan aur news laundry apna hafta kabhi nahi chhodte. Welcome to another episode of Hafta from relatively more cooler but humid and rainy Delhi. We have a panel that actually we have two experts who have been in the thick of it recently and the beats they cover have been in the thick of it. Before I introduce the panel, here are the headlines. Phone numbers of Indian ministers, opposition politicians, journalists, activists and others are listed on a leaked database that reflects potential targets of the Pegasus hacking software. The Editors Guild of India has demanded an inquiry by a Supreme Court monitored independent committee into the alleged misuse of the Pegasus spyware. The Pulitzer winning Indian journalist and chief photographer for Reuters news agency in India, Danish Siddiqui, was killed in Afghanistan while on assignment by the Taliban. The Editors Guild of India says it was deeply disturbed by the racist campaign on social media against photojournalist Danish Siddiqui, who was killed in Afghanistan. IT department raids multiple premises of Dainik Bhaskar Group and Bharat Samachar Channel. Remember that Dainik Bhaskar had very aggressively reported on the second wave of the pandemic. They've also been reporting on the Project Pegasus on their front page and they are the only Hindi daily to do so. At least five states, including those not ruled by the BJP, said that there have been no deaths due to lack of oxygen during the devastating second wave. This came amid the center facing a huge political backlash for claiming in parliament that no data was provided by states on deaths due to oxygen shortage, even as the crisis captured global attention. Public health experts deride the center for claiming that there have been no deaths due to the lack of oxygen during second wave. The center has said media reports on India vastly undercounting its coronavirus toll were totally fallacious. The health ministry said that the reports wrongly assumed that all the excess deaths were covid mortalities i've read some of these reports and this is not true none of the reports have said this reports have actually said that you can't assume that all of the deaths were covid mortalities the indian government has ordered 660 million vaccine doses its largest procurement for august december 2021 as several states have reported vaccine shortages the delhi disaster management association has cancelled the kaveri yatra to prevent the spread of covid 19 Uh, Uttarakhand also has cancelled it and the Uttar Pradesh government has also cancelled it. This was after the Supreme Court's intervention. Turbulent start to the monsoon session of the parliament. PM Modi was not able to introduce his new ministers. Opposition leaders have been protesting against fuel price hike, new farm laws and also Pegasus revelations. RSS chief Mohan Bhagwat has said that no Muslim will face any setback owing to the CAA while in Assam on a two-day visit. That's it. And I'd like to remind you how important it is that you must pay to keep news free. Uh, like I have said, Ayush Tiwari and Basan's story on the amount of money that is being spent by governments keeping news afloat means that news will serve those governments, which is why you must pay to keep news free. Go to newsland.com, click on the subscribe button, and pay to keep news free, guys. Last week we saw a huge dip in subscriptions. Please don't let that happen. We are recording this. on friday the 23rd of july at 1 in the afternoon so on the panel we have today in the studio raman kripal and me Hi. i'm abhinandan sekri joining us on the phone line uh, is uh, siddharth vardarajan hi siddharth hi hi abhinandan siddharth is the founding editor of the wire uh, he is also the former editor in chief of hindu most of you would know that and he has worked at the times of india he has received several awards for his journalism including the ramnath goenka award for journalist of the year in 2010 and the Bernardo O'Higgins order by the president of Chile. Uh, I'm glad you're with us Siddharth and I'm guessing this conversation is being heard by Modi ji and Amit Shah so hi sirs I'm sure you have <laughs> access to Siddharth Zoom. Also joining us on the phone line is Happy Mon Jacob. 
Hi, Happy Mon. Hi, hi, Abhinandan. So, Happy Mon. Uh, I'm sure many of you have read his pieces. He is associate professor of diplomacy and disarmament at the JNU in New Delhi. And before this, he was uh, in 2008 a teaching position he had in the University of Jammu in Jammu and Kashmir, and at the Jamia Millia Islamia University, which is here in New Delhi. He serves as an elected member of the International Governing Council of the Nobel Peace Prize-winning Pugwash Conference on Science and World Affairs. He also writes columns for Hindu. He hosts a weekly show on national security at the Wire, which of which uh, Siddharth is a founding editor, and he's written several books. Among them, The Line of Control: Traveling with the Indian and Pakistani Armies, and Line on Fire: Ceasefire Violations and India-Pakistan Escalation Dynamics. And joining us from Dehradun, she's not here this week, is uh, Manisha Pandey. Our executive editor. Mm-hmm. Hi, Manisha. Hi. So let's get on first with uh, you know since we have two area experts, we're going to be discussing Afghanistan in in some depth where we lost wonderful Danish, uh, and also the much spoken about and ignored by some sections of media, the Pegasus hack. Let's call it a hack, which is what it is. Easily the story of the year. So congratulations to Siddharth and the Wire. Yes. Thank you. So, so that's the the irony that the wire has been wired is is a bad joke, which I must start with. But uh, <laughs> just clarify, because uh, you know there's a lot of misinformation, disinformation, and also confusion, genuine confusion going around. Um, some claim. I'll just give context. There was this huge news break a few days ago, where uh, it emerged, which Amnesty International had uh, made public, that. Hundreds of uh, phones had been hacked using a software called Pegasus, which is uh, marketed and created by an Israeli company. It is used by vetted governments. They only sell it to vetted governments. It costs a bomb. Uh, we'll get some more details from Siddharth. And that that um, hack, that worm, had infected many phones in India of journalists of. Politicians, of bureaucrats, and as it emerges today, of even the top cop, uh, the head of CBI. Now, after that, someone reported, and it was picked up by the usual suspects, that Amnesty has said that the list that was given was only people who could have been. I, I don't really know what that means. Amnesty, after that, has denied that, but one Israeli journalist continues to insist that he has it in writing from Amnesty that they don't have any confirmation. They just have a list of 50,000 people who could have been hacked. Now, that is the context. Can I just button? Because we are doing a very detailed story on this. We've at least spoken to that journalist, Umair Kabir, whose article, uh, Times Now, and all have kind of erroneously, uh, you know, uh, broadcast. So I can get into that after Siddharth because we actually spoke to him. And it's really not what the Indian television media as usual is telling us. So, Siddharth, uh, A, just uh, clarify the, the ones that they have confirmed knowledge of that you know they examined your phones who did it and do we know the origin of this leak was it a whistleblower was it a technical glitch was it a hack what was it okay so i can't speak uh, about the source of the uh, leak database at all and i hope you'll understand that uh, the i mean that's the, so that's kind of off the table uh, uh, but essentially i mean what is in the public domain is that forbidden stories accessed this uh, leaked database and shared the details with uh, 16 media partners and amnesty international was the technical um, partner of this entire exercise and they helped to conduct forensic examinations of uh, phones that we suspected of being infected right so that's as far as the source of the data is concerned 
that's in the public domain. Uh, since you raised the Amnesty International uh, misreporting issue, um, we we actually now have the formal English translation of the statement that uh, Amnesty International put out in Hebrew, uh, and uh, we'll be, I think, running it pretty soon. And when you see, when you read the formal English translation of the Hebrew statement, you will see that there is no difference at all in the way Amnesty uh, speaks about the data and the way that all of us have been speaking about the data. In fact, the statement of Amnesty clearly says that uh, Amnesty, the journalist partner in the to the investigation, and the media outlets that employed the database clarified from the outset in the clearest terms possible that the list was of numbers targeted as of interest to NSO clients, namely various regimes around the world. NSO claims the list is meaningless and could have been arbitrarily taken from the yellow pages, but that's not the case. The list shows the areas of interest of the company's clients who sought to track and monitor journalists, human rights activists, lawyers, and so forth, and not just terrorists, right? So, so, so the amnesty issue to my mind, is a, is a storm in the teacup, deliberately floated uh, and latched on by the BJP and its people here. Uh, so again, so let's set, set that aside. Uh, what we can say with, uh, um, uh, you know, concretely about about the numbers, and, and let's let's just focus on the India numbers, because we were able to verify uh, the identity of three hundred of those numbers, uh, and uh, we were uh, we approached around, I would say. Uh, 50, 40, 50 odd uh, of the, of, you know, 40, 50 individuals out of that 300, which we verified to request them to, to see if they would be willing to do forensics. And uh, some declined, others didn't have the phone um, that they were using at that time. Uh, so finally, uh, around 21 or 22 people consented for uh, having their, their phone data examined forensically. And of those 21, 22 uh, phones that we were able to examine, as many as 10 carried clear evidence of uh, of Pegasus on them. Uh, in eight phones, there was a full-blown infection, and in two phones, a uh, clear sign that uh, a, a, an attempted Pegasus infection had been had been made. So uh, 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 if you correlate the fact that these 10 phones come from the list of 300, if you correlate that many of the names on the list of 300 were earlier notified by WhatsApp in uh, 2019, right? You, 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 yes. your, your listeners may recall that yeah, in 2019, WhatsApp informed around 120 Indians, 121, I believe, that uh, uh, Pegasus uh, had attempted to or successfully hack their phones. And we don't know the names. Uh, WhatsApp never released the names of the people that they informed, but some of them went public. Uh, and we've spoken to many of those. And so, th so those who went public are pretty much on our list. And uh, I can also add that the um, names of, of people on the WhatsApp list correlate to, they have a similar timestamp to the to the listing of those names on our list. So uh, uh, that's why with a very high degree of certainty, we say that this list of 300 is, a, is the list of potential targets of uh, Pegasus. We can't confirm, as we have repeatedly said from day one, whether a phone was actually infected until we physically examine it. And that's not always been possible. Because some of them don't want to give the phones to you at all. Right. But you know, we try to explain that 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 there is that this is a, a confidential process. But you know, the fact is that uh, you have to you know your 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 iPhone backup is getting uploaded onto a server, uh, and so people you know people have varying degrees of comfort with that. Oh, I can and imagine I like it. like the CBI yeah, chief yeah. Rahul Gandhi would not like to give their phones to uh, anyone to look at. So I mean that, that's but the ones yeah, those yeah. of you who did those of you who did there was confirmation that is important to reiterate. 
a very uh, like a success rate of around 50%, you know. So so and and I should add I should add that the the remaining 50% turned out inconclusive because they were they were mostly android phones and and the the uh, uh, you know forensic examination is notoriously weak when it comes to androids and one has to rely on other sources of information like i think what i think all of the phones that whatsapp uh, notified were android so i think whatsapp has a way of perhaps checking androids but uh, but the tools that amnesty international employs works uh, quite effectively with with iphones but very badly with androids so um now th- that is so those of you who are listening and who have friends relatives acquaintances colleagues who say ye to puri story fake hai there is no such thing it is speculative you have it here on record by one of the people whose phone was infected it has been forensically um, confirmed and also the answers of the indian government and the representatives is very similar to the answer i watched hard talk on bbc with the hungarian foreign minister peter sijarto i'm not sure how he pronounced it sijarto who's in fact i think all of them are copy pasting the same response that we have not done any illegal uh, intervention all countries have the right to do any intervention to 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 protect themselves and to fight terrorism but he also did not deny it it was very similar to us so uh, manisha you were saying something that you have got um you spoke to that journalist yeah and i would just like to point out to uh, all our listeners and do share this since this is going to be a free hafta this one is not behind the paywall because of the significance of it and how important it is we're leaving this outside the paywall uh, that there is this misinformation being floated by legacy media some sections of legacy media that this didn't happen at all and it's just a fatura that has been floated it is not we have confirmation so do tell them that and while you're at it you can also pay to keep news free neither has this podcast been sponsored by android or apple or pegasus or the government of india or yogi's ads yeah go ahead manisha so the report in question which everyone's running with and, and using to disamnesty was published in calculist by this reporter called umair kabir he's a security journalist israel based and uh, just want to give you the chronology on this so basically july 18th amnesty uh, pegasus project is launched on july 20th kabir basically did an interview with the nso group ceo and the nso group ceo said that the foundation on which this investigation is based is a list which no one knows is actually true now in response to this amnesty put out a press release in israel and gave it to all the journalists there it's in hebrew and kabir on the basis of this uh, you know press release did another report saying the headline of which was basically that the list of 50000 phone numbers isn't directly related to nso now everyone in the indian media picked up this you know directly related to nso bit but we spoke to kabir and he was actually pretty stunned because you know nidhi called him up in the morning and he was like why is everyone from india calling me what's this whole issue so we sent him the tweet and he said you know your piece is really making waves here and everyone is saying that you know this means that amnesty is completely uh, put out a fake list you know so he said no this is the operative word here is directly related to nso which actually amnesty has also been saying from the beginning what they've said is that this is a list of clients that are of potential interest to nso's clients this is very different from saying it's an nso list that targeted right uh, you know that as a list nso list of people who were actually targeted so of course the origins like sadat said the origins of the list are going to be a bit of a mystery just like radio tapes we don't know who really leaked those tapes and where they came from in this case also i'm sure forbidden stories and amnesty wants to protect their whistle blower source but what they've actually been saying from the very beginning is not very different from what the press release said and what the israeli journalist also said and he 
as much as went to channels and said the same thing yesterday but of course you know while he was saying that this doesn't negate the list it simply means that the list is not an nso list quote and quote with numbers of people actually attacked you know channels like times now was still kind of running like sure. you know, amnesty u turn and so everyone kind of ignored what he said but yeah it's really i mean it's really the operative word is directly related to nso so um bbc podcast had said yesterday that the origin of this leak is someone a former employee now i don't know where they got the information from but that was what the bbc podcast said but all journalists who are involved will definitely try to keep this as confidential as possible uh, happy mon in the context of this you know we know have we have fires against the wire uh, we had um raids on uh, although the it department says there were not raids i'm not sure what they were but there were several vehicles of people went to say hi to the employees and promoters of uh, the bhaskar group and also the channel called um, bharat samachar bharat samachar the bharat samachar also uh, received notices right they received notices or they also had raids so but which they had raids but with the id it department says are not raids so hyper in the context of all this um a are you disappointed that you were not on the list because that's i saw some many people tweeting that if you're not on the list you don't deserve the blue tick so i don't know if you have the blue tick on twitter or not and b uh, in your view you know you have covered uh, pakistan afghanistan and you're a veteran professor academic is this a new low have we been here before uh, or is it just that we hear more about it because we live in the digital age you know as soon as this call is over i'm going to give a call to siddharth and ask him whether my number is on the list and if it is not i'll request siddharth to you know tell people that my number is on the list please i mean you know uh, it can it can't be that bad uh, but i mean this is this is really uh, outrageous i mean what i mean if i may put it this way this is uh, this is a perfect example of uh, the hand eye coordination of the bharat sarkar right i mean you have the eye which is pegasus and then you have the hand which is the ed and the income tax so it's it's a well coordinated sort of uh, phenomenon that what 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 we are seeing um you know simple simple questions are not answered um i mean the simple question whether the government of india purchased the uh, software uh, the government is not giving a straightforward answer yes or no instead of answering that simple question they are they are assuming various yoga postures right i mean bending over backwards that this and the other i mean we need we need answers I and mean, i think this is this is uh, uh, this is clearly a new law um but you know let me let me sort of uh, flag a couple of uh, larger questions here now um as as someone who has been studying uh, has been a student of national security i would say uh, intelligence gathering is important i mean should states have electronic surveillance capabilities yes they should have electronic surveillance capabilities we are living next door to china and china sort of probably hacks into uh, uh, things left right and center um, so states should have such capacity now the question is whether there should be enough uh, whether there are enough checks and balances in our country in order to ensure that there is no misuse of this kind of technology right i mean let me let me ask a very simple question for instance now if nso needs the permission of the israeli defense ministry to sell this um, uh, software to its clients which is which are which are states only um now the question is when states collect this information or data or this intelligence does nso also have access to that same intelligence now they of course the nso will say we don't how do we know and if the nso has that intelligence uh, or that data uh, will the israeli defense ministry have that data now i don't have answers to these questions but i think these hard questions are not simply asked so this is not for me this is not just a question of 
internal surveillance of uh, uh, political opponents or people within the within the government or in the on, or in the judiciary but it is also about national security there is a national security angle now if states like india acquire this kind of capabilities ideally they should be uh, you know using this to understand what say probably china is doing on the line of actual control uh, but that is not what is happening what is happening is exactly the other way around um, um, you know, I I, I um, remember this cartoon long time ago when uh, Mulayam Singh Yadav was the defense minister. Uh, you know, he was, this is this cartoon, so he was standing on the line of control with a binocular, but the end of the binocular was uh, towards uh, uh, towards uh, uh, Uttar Pradesh and not Pakistan. Uh, I think I think that, <laughs> I think that is what is happening now. This is this is a very very uh, sort of a complicated question. Now, I so for I for one. Um, I, I, I believe in basic rights, but I'm also a national security analyst. I think governments should have electronic surveillance capabilities, but there should be checks and balances. Intelligence agencies should be accountable to the parliament, select committees of parliament, or whichever committee of the parliament, uh, there should be checks and balances. That is so, not so, what is happening. And our media is not asking these questions. Uh, but Habiman, if you could answer this, I was speaking to a foreign policy expert uh, two days ago, uh, and he is not a combative uh, you know, journalist. So, but he had said that this is a question that someone should ask. A, two questions that I know Manish Tiwari had uh, floated a private member's bill a few years ago, which kind of suggested that the IB and the RAW don't have parliamentary oversight or defense ministry oversight. Uh, they kind of exist in this vacuum. So, A, what is the truth behind that? What is the oversight to this? Because he says this could give the government culpable deniability. A, is that true? B, uh, this point that if the government says this didn't happen and they ignore it, then India is a free-for-all. So China can say, you know what, when something like this emerges, they deny it. So let's just hack Modi's phone, Amit Shah's phone. I mean, then India becomes a free-for-all banana republic because when something like this emerges, no action is taken. Can you just uh, address both these questions? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think I think this is not just a banana republic now, it's becoming a rotten banana republic. Um, you know, and Manish Tiwari is pretty accurate. Uh, there is no parliamentary oversight on the uh, workings of the Intelligence Bureau or of the RNW. Uh, they have um, slush funds uh, that are uh, not audited, at least not audited um, uh, by by the constitutional authorities. They may have their own internal auditing. So who do who do they respond to? They respond to the um, the Home Minister and and the Prime Minister. Um, now that uh, now what Manish Tiwari is saying is that we need to have a we need to have a law in this country where um, uh, you know based on various secrecy uh, sort of arrangements and laws etc etc uh, Parliament uh, at least certain members of the Parliament should be aware of the activities of these um, of of of, of, the, of these organisations and I and I completely agree with him. In the United States you have that 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 provision right? I mean you can't get away obviously. The intelligence agency, CIA, and the others uh, uh, lie to the uh, uh, you know oversight committees in the U.S. Congress, um, and yet there are certain there are certain checks and balances. Now, what happens in the Indian case is that we are so busy with uh, you know uh, planting surveillance on our own political opponents that China is going to have a free day tomorrow. It, it, it's going to have a free. Uh, it, it's going to sort of get into uh, the IB directors or the um, or, or, or the RNW chiefs phone tomorrow. They have the capability. I mean, you, you must have seen that uh, report. Was it in the New York Times or um, Washington Post where 
the the Chinese managed to shut down uh, uh, the power supply in, power supply in the city of Mumbai. Uh, so if they can do that, that is that is just a warning. If that is if that uh, that is accurate. So the point that I'm trying to make is that we need these capabilities, but they must be under proper checks and balances. There should be oversight. It can't be just one one individual, two individual, two and a half individuals managing these things. Right. So, Siddharth, uh, coming back to you, if you want to address any of those yeah. issues, you can. And I just have one additional question to you. Uh, now, going forward, uh, you know, as a journalist, you have done a fantastic story, the story of the year. Um, what is the kind of pushback you are facing or expecting to face and also your views on the raids that happened? I also want to know how Vio came to be part of the project. This is something that everyone wants to know. Okay, so I'll, I'll start with Manisha's uh, question first. So uh, sometime in the middle of March, uh, I was contacted by uh, a, a journalist who, uh, who I know very well, who um, said that they were reaching out to me on behalf of Forbidden Stories and they wanted to come and meet me. Meet, meet me and uh, my colleague M.K. Venu, who everybody knows is also um, one of the founding editors of The Wire. And they wouldn't explain what the purpose behind the meeting was going to be, but we said, yeah, sure. And uh, so on the appointed day, um, the Forbidden Stories people basically explained that they had good reason to believe our numbers were, our phones were compromised. And uh, would we be willing to uh, have them checked up forensically? Um, uh, so we said, yeah, we would. And uh, so even as the process was, um, was underway, essentially uploading a backup took many, many hours because of my shitty internet connection. Uh, they explained that, um, uh, you know, they had access this data and there were a good number of uh, Indian uh, Indians on the list and, uh, well, a, a large, you know, several hundred Indian numbers. And uh, would we be willing to join them in an international project uh, aimed at exploring exactly how uh, these infections are being uh, carried out and who the targets are and so on. So we said, yes, we would. And um, we knew about the work of Forbidden Stories and um, you know the, the, the high credibility they carry. So we said, fine, we would. And then, of course, a couple of days uh, later, they got back with the results of the forensics. So my, it turned out that, that my, you know, I had two phones, uh, my current current iPhone and my earlier phone. So the, the new phone um, came out clean, but but the iPhone that I had um, until uh, March of last year was fully infected. And the reason why the new phone perhaps escaped that infection was because I didn't, uh, when I transferred my, I didn't transfer data from the old phone to the new because I just didn't have space on my laptop. Uh, so it was just the my, my phone book done through the iCloud and that was it. Uh, and of course, um, you know, so so uh, so that's when we decided to, you know, uh, we we were already committed, but when we heard that uh, the infections were real, um, we said, "Fine, we will uh, we will pursue this actively." We couldn't we couldn't kind of fully jump into the into the project until um, until the first week of May, actually, because of the COVID situation in India and uh, also restrictions on uh, Indians going abroad. Uh, there was a meeting in Paris. Uh, where we wanted to send our tech editor in the first week of May, but uh, that wasn't possible because of uh, French restrictions. But we had a colleague who is on a sabbatical in Europe, and we were able to deploy him and and then basically get the material we needed to fully jump into the project. So that's that's as far as how we got involved. Uh, Abhi, in terms of your question of of where we go from here and pushback, you know, frankly, I don't know. I mean, the government is is in denial, and hmm. uh, so uh, I. 
I wonder whether they will stick to the denial mode or shift tack later. But as of now, uh, you know, uh, there's no pushback on us. I mean, other than the usual threats and so on. Yes. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, who knows? Who knows what they will throw at us? But you know, over the last six, seven years, uh, we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of pressure, as you have too. And you know, for us, the earlier earliest phase was uh, were defamation cases, then pressure on on funding, then uh, in the last year and a half, uh, criminal FIRs being filed for stories. Uh, so uh, each what's time the status of those? Up, there, there was a team of UP here to arrest you. Has that been quashed? Is that in court? What is the status of that? FIR? No, everything is uh, no, everything is kind of in in, in limbo. I mean, everything is pending, so nothing is quashed, and all, all all the four criminal cases are are active cases, and uh, so so but but the you know so we will deal we will deal with each uh, each case as and when dates emerge and so on. So that's not a problem, and I, I don't think we anticipate any. Uh, anything that we can't handle because uh, you know already whatever the wire has done has been an open book for the government because you know all of us had assumed as perhaps all of you in news laundry and other media organizations do that even if your phone is tapped uh, maybe whatsapp and signal are secure but now it's clear that nothing is secure if your phone right. is pegasus and uh, so 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 they have known everything about us uh, which is fine and despite knowing everything about us uh, we still exist and we still are flourishing and thriving uh, and uh, are, are part of the you know wonderful ecosystem of uh, of independent digital media in India. Yeah, uh, uh, that, you know, th that is pushing the boundaries and doing the work that legacy media, sadly, even though well resourced, is not doing. And so, uh, so more power to us. And, and, and remarkably well resourced. In fact, do read Ayush Tiwari and Basant's story on uh, the UP government's ad spend and how many crores. I think uh, Network eighteen. 160 crore total network 18 has got some 26 odd crores yeah. in that yeah, figure yeah, yeah. so yeah, uh, and, and i just I, you know because you mentioned bhaskar i mean i just want to put it out there that that uh, you know anybody who can who can deny the you know chronology to use amit shah's favorite word is living in a fool's paradise i mean uh, the fact is that bhaskar uh, you know was very very uh, you know uh, diligent in the kind of reporting it did during the second wave in, in uttar pradesh and uh, so, so it, you know, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that they've been targeted. Quite frankly, whatever and, the government says, uh, the link is very clear. And and this is why uh, the networks that got these dozens of crores from the Yogi government gave him a platform to do his PR, which is why you have to support organizations like the Wire dot in uh, News Laundry. You know, get onto the Wire, support them. They have cases to file. Thank you all. You know, and we had that case by Times now and then one by um, yeah, uh, that yeah. um, Sakal Media, that FIR has been quashed. You know, uh, it was subscribers uh, who gave us money, not, uh, you know, Kejriwal's ads or Yogi's ads or Modi's ads. It was, you know, people like you listeners who contributed. And that is why we can continue to fight and really don't give a fuck about what these guys throw at us. So do go to the wire.in and contribute. Uh, do come to newsline.com and contribute. So uh, the Washington Post has said that uh, there's a tight correlation between, you know, the timestamps from when the numbers were entered on the list and the first attempt of surveillance. So I want to know in your case, when was, do you know when your, uh, you know, number was entered on the list and when was the first attempt of surveillance? Um, yeah, so, so, yeah, so there is, I mean, I haven't actually looked at the data for my case, uh, but but my first, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, Everything, all the action happens, I think, in the first week of April 2018. Uh, I mean, I get added and, and there is evidence 
through forensics and activity on my phone. So, so uh, what the project as a whole has found for the 37 numbers which were found infected across the world, 10 of which are in India, is that um, you know uh, in some cases uh, the time gap between when the phone, you know, the, the timestamp associated with the number in the database and the actual infection uh, is barely a few seconds. In uh, in in another bunch of, um, uh, so I think I think the total number of phones where the gap is just a couple of seconds is maybe two or three. And then, then you have others where the gap is 10 to 15 seconds. In some cases, the gap is two to three minutes. So there is a very, very tight correlation between um, the actual infection, you know, the traces that we found through forensics and the timestamps that are there in the database that we accessed. And um, did uh, when you look back, did you see anything like, is, is there any technical evidence to say, which phones get successfully infected and which ones do not? Is there any such insight that you have? Did you see your phone behaving in a way that now that you think back? No, no, no. I have, I have no. Uh, I mean, it's impossible to because it's it's with three years and uh, you know, uh, so it's it's very difficult to make that. But what I, what I def, what I did do is I I tried to correlate the date and timestamps that came back from the you know forensics with what I was doing on those particular days and so on. And, uh, and did, did discover some awkward uh, things, you know, like for example, there was, uh, you know, this period seemed to coincide with uh, the our, our uh, case, our uh, petition in the Supreme Court for quashing the defamation proceedings that uh, Amit Shah's son had filed against us. So uh, it seems as if um, on some of those days of, of maybe preparatory meetings and so on, the phone, showed activity. I can't conclusively say that because I really have to sit and do a very, very close analysis. And half the time, you don't even, I don't even save my appointments. But it does seem as if, uh, yeah, in my case and in the case of others, it would be possible to construct some kind of a rationale based on the timestamps. But at the end of the day, uh, only those who have, who have used this, these illegal means uh, of surveillance uh, can, can explain to us or be compelled to explain to us why they have done this. Right. So thank you very much. Thanks, Siddharth. Yeah. Thank you for and, coming. And thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Bye, bye. Good luck. So uh, uh, coming to you, sir, uh, you know, recently, who Asthana's on the list? Or, uh, Asthana is uh, and the, who the, was, his rival also. Both are on the list. I see. So they, of course, won't give their phone. Alokara. So they, of course, won't give their phone for uh, examination. Uh, but... What is the evidence? You have covered the CBI closely. When such resources are given to an organization, what is the likelihood of they can go rogue? And, you know, I mean, and I would just like to point out uh, that not only have journalists, not that I'm saying that's justified that you should, you know, infect journalists' phones and surveil journalists, but even the young lady who had accused the former chief justice of inappropriate behavior, even she was. her family, you know, her connections, I mean, this is like basically, a, you know, a gunda from the you know nukkad ke acha este pangaliya us par nazar rakh us par nazar matlab iska na desh se lena na dena matlab kuch bhi pel do i mean that is the caliber of people who are actually leading the country right now but with the cbi a when something like this happens uh, would really the cbi chief give a shit or he has bigger fish to fry of retirement benefits and can they go rogue i mean can a cbi that reports directly to the pm is it possible for them to say, you know what, I will act on my own and I will do stuff that even he doesn't know, which I can use against him tomorrow. Is that possible? There are about 10 or 15 uh, central uh, intelligence, uh, you know, agencies uh, which do this kind of job. And uh, 
we know most of them raw cbi ib, uh, IB. Uh, the one that we don't know about is i think uh, dri which is directorate of revenue intelligence and uh, uh, narcotics economics offenses uh, wing economic offenses wing so, so there are about 10 or 15 of them see uh, in older times you need to you know have an infra for this i remember in cbi used to have an office near uh, this khan market a uh, lok some lok nirman building or something where they had the infra so they how they used to hack it so i mean they, so they you needed hardware also you actually needed a full full office full infra for this mm. and they will just give you uh, a call uh, which will be a blank call and the moment you say hello they'll put the receiver down and after that your phone is hacked so normally it used to happen with the not not the cell phone i'm talking even before the landlines uh, landlines and all this is how they used to do it so there will be one person sitting over there listening monitoring it mm-hmm. listening to it you know making records or so so it used to happen like that it was and when it comes to the permission they cannot go wrong in the sense that they need a permission to uh you know uh to 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 snoop on someone okay the court permission there is there is a procedure entire for procedure that. for this and uh, home ministry also they they when they apply uh, what my sources you know senior police officers have told that even when they apply for it they get a leeway to you know snoop for 2 3 days till the permission comes in okay okay so so even in that case also they are able to do but now with pegasus it's huge i mean also i want to say that uh, you talked about that private citizen bill a private member bill manish, manish tiwari his own government has also done lot of snooping so mm. so i mean i don't know whether he came up with this bill during the bjp government or he came up with this bill during his own government right. i'm not aware of it uh so uh the congress has also done it and uh, you know every time when such things come out it it is quite sensational like, uh, like when i was with express tata tapes yeah. big, tata tapes were huge okay so so now now then then came this radia Hmm. tapes so so uh, but now with pegasus actually that changes things significantly because of ai and machine learning you can you know just identify words and you don't have to have a supervision of a human you can just collect all of this on a server and you know there can be ai bots that can identify certain word and and pull out whatever bits but with the cbi how, how would this impact the cbi's working like if the chief of the cbi is being snooped and the his number 2 is being snooped so is it like agency against agency like are we living in a time where everyone is going to be talking in a whisper like you know i saw that documentary film during saddam's regime even when husband and wife would want to talk to each other they'd go out in the lawn you know put the radio on a very high volume and then talk in whispers because no one trusted anyone i mean organizations machinery of the state becoming like that with the cbi being snooped i mean i'm sure the cbi have, I would be wondering is, who has this now. Ah, this is how the government of the day tames, you know, all these people. Like when the Supreme Court has given a permanent two years of, uh, you know, uh, tenure to the CBI director. So if he goes wrong, so how how you're going to tame him? So this is how I think how the government of uh, of the day 
you know tames these people but i i will say we need to take this story forward and how we can take it forward we need to uh, see whether the pegasus has played a role in overthrowing government in madhya pradesh overthrowing Karnataka. government in ha so so we need to check if those people were also in the list of uh, are they part of that 300 people so we need to see uh, even uh, uh, you know the, the government which was over because because we need to see that how the government has used it right. you know i mean we are getting some like name of that lady who hmm. had accused the supreme court judge hmm. siddharth vardharajan mk venu i mean these hmm. are i mean also this also indicates that even the smaller intelligence agencies uh, i mean uh, ib in particular which is very political in nature their intelligence is of political kind so they have got access to pegasus so they have bought i can one can easily presume that they have bought and that's the, a lot of money huh. i think so manisha you have anything to add to this because then i want to move into happy mon and and uh, what's happening in afghanistan and you know some insights into that but on the pegasus issue on the legacy media's coverage uh, and any insight into the costs how much it cost per head matlab per person kitna padega i think about a crore is what i read it said person. 140 million is for whatever us dollars is what they said it would cost to get 100 people in india right how many people in india on the list 300 300 okay so but anything um, 15000 in mexico the maximum wow mexico is yeah, achha, that's, yeah. 15000 i think one or two things are worth noting here that with regard to journalists who are on the list uh, these journalists you know in the case of saudi you know if you look at jamal khashoggi fine he was a dissident it's not fine but you know saudi went after a person who they presumed to be a dissident against the regime many of the cases numbers on our list are just regular beat reporters you know reporters covering the election mm. commission reporters covering home affairs really people going about their daily jobs of news gathering so to find them on the list is very alarming because this means that the government i can't say the government because what reports have said is nso clients so these nso clients who used presumably this uh, you know spyware or have uh, you know expressed interest in these journalists it's it's basically a paranoid regime because these guys aren't even dissidents they're just regular reporters but And some of them are very friendly to the government also some of them are even friendly so this means there's a hyper paranoia around information who's giving what information to whom and like you said no gali ke nukkar ki chalo let's keep a tab on everyone it's, it's that kind of a uh, thing this is very scary now in the case of mexico uh, those are some of the very scary cases i was reading a guardian interview with the new yorker the reporter who led the investigation for the guardian and she said there's reason to believe that in mexico the spyware was used by people other than the government other rogue actors so i think this is something that we should explore in india also if we can on whether uh, and of course this is something only the nso can answer but is it are we sure that only government clients were being given these spyware Uh, Raman sir had something to add. Just like Manisha, Raman sir had something to add. No, I'm not surprised that uh, even uh, you know small-time beat reporters, even the bureau chiefs, you know they have also been uh, snooped on over. So see here, uh, why I'm not surprised because the Congress government, the previous governments have also done it. But yes, when you get caught, then it becomes very alarming. So uh, and IB normally does it. Okay, IB has got. you know a dossier on each and every journalist who is problematic whose reports are uh, you know disturbing whose reports are anti government so this has been happening 
and uh, is happening you know more vigorously maybe uh, during the present government so, so i think one thing is that israel has initiated a panel review of nso france is launching an inquiry india is the only country at least from what i've seen where there's just the government is just out there to say the list is fake out from like just from nowhere is the statement being you know uh, people like minakshi lekhi and of course friends of bjp in the media like arnab and poor imitations on times now have go- been going on and on about the list being fake but this is a global project you know if it is fake i think we could trust the western european democracies at least to come up with you know yeah better so uh, happy mon kabir the defi yeah happy mon just yeah i just wanted to add a question um actually i don't have an answer to that really you know and and this is something that i flagged early on during my remarks um it is one thing to argue that it is uh, it is it is it is it is terrible it is outrageous that uh, the government is snooping on its own citizens in an illegal manner they are not even sort of owning up to it but to me the real bigger question is uh, or equally important question is whether the nso and the israeli defense ministry also have access to the same data that is gathered in various countries if that is the case and i have no reason to doubt that is not the case uh, i think we are in then um, you know in 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 a slightly difficult situation because you know the the data belonging to a cbi uh, chief or a or a judge or senior officials in the Uh, in the, the government if that data is gathered by the government the nso has access to that and if the israeli defense ministry also has access to that i think that's that considering the kind of technology that we have now mm. i'm very sure that nso has got an access to yeah this data nso's only authorizes use of pegasus for terrorists criminals drug cartels uh. pedophiles <laughs> <laughs> so far, we haven't seen any of these guys feature on the list. Just, just so that everybody understands, NSO is not a government agency. It is yeah. a tech company that offers services, just like you know your gadi gali ke nukkars offer those detective services. Isko follow karo. It is that at a big level. It doesn't stand for National Security Organization or anything. NSO is named after the founders, which is a gentleman called Niv. Shalev and Omri NSO that's Novalpina Capital is the company that owns it and Omri Levy and Shalev I don't know his full name Shalev Julio Omri Levy Shalev Julio and Niv Karmi these are the three people so that is why it's NSO it is not national security organization or anything in case that's what you were thinking and it is a private company and by some accounts it is a company that is hugely valuable and it was planning to IPO now just before you know now with this kind of stuff its ipo seems a bit dodgy and you know how did they go about it but if a private company whose motive is you know they they're in this business for money it is not a hospital it is not a uh, you know hmm. uh, it is not any of this public services like what you call way. what you call like you know whether hospitals schools even though you know hospitals and schools maybe you know for profit they are basically for something that is a huge public uh, service this is I mean, why would someone? I mean, there are many countries in this world where an industrialist is the government. एक पुरानी आदत है ना मतलब एक पुराना जोक है who owns this airline? Indian government. Who owns the Indian government? Ambani. You remember that joke? It's an old joke. There's a different joke, which is uh, India is going from self-reliance to reliance. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so th- that is truly alarming. So, Manisha, you were saying something? No, just that, uh, just the bit on who. 
uh, the Pegasus spyware is meant for terrorists. Right, terrorists. That's what they say. But yeah, if we had data protection bill passed, you know, then we could have legally asked for this. You know, asked asked you know uh, questions. We we would have uh, you know got a remedy, legal remedy through the Data Protection Act. But, but it's not don't. there, so I don't know how we are going to approach the court. So that is that technology is always about two decades ahead of Indian laws. So uh, on that note, uh, just want to remind everybody to pay to keep news free. We live in times where news as a public service is all but absent. Ayush Tiwari and Basan's stories prove that. You can check out that report on newslaundry.com. Uh, do have a look and then you will more so understand even after the discussion why you must pay to keep news free. So come on to newslearner.com, click on the subscribe button and subscribe, uh, become a paying member that keeps journalism alive. You can also contribute directly to our NL Sena project. So you were saying something? The follow-up story is going to be better. Oh, really? We are, we are trying to analyze on what, like uh, how much they have spent on the COVID ads, how much they have spent on the personal ads. Oh, nice. So, so that also. So there's part two of that story coming up. Now, Happy Mon, uh, just to give the context, uh, Taliban has been on this aggressive takeover of Afghanistan. The US forces have withdrawn as promised by Biden. Uh, this is something that even Trump actually had wanted. Um, the Taliban claims that they have secured 90% of the borders of Afghanistan. I don't know how much of Taliban can be believed. In sheer area, they have got large areas, but if you see some of the commentary around it, um, the, the, the narrative of the Afghanistan government is that, and also the US, that they were advised just secure the high-value targets, whether it is, you know, where the networks are, where broadcast is, where the infrastructure is, where the power supply and the pipelines, etc. is. To what extent is the Taliban on the verge of taking over Afghanistan or is it overhyped? And B, does the Taliban have significant popular support? And what does this mean for India and the rest of the world? Yeah, I think that's that's several questions um, um, uh, I'm asking as one question. Let me let me put it this way: I think it is not going to be that easy for the Taliban to take over Afghanistan. But uh, it is, I mean, if 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 things things progress the way they are pro- progressing at this point of time, the Americans withdrawing, Pakistan is giving support to the Taliban. Um, you know, China negotiating with both Kabul and the Taliban. Um, Iranians in touch with the with, with the Taliban and and Russians uh, also uh, in touch with the Taliban and, and Kabul. I think it's a matter of time uh, before the Taliban uh, becomes a part of the government in Kabul, one way or another. Now, it could be through sheer force they could mass murder their way into Kabul, or they could be. Uh, you know, part of a negotiated settlement in Afghanistan. Uh, if there has to be a negotiated settlement in Afghanistan, there has to be some sort of a lawyer jirga or the, you know, grand assembly, uh, which will have to sort of bring all these guys together and, uh, uh, you know, then, then sort of have a power sharing agreement. Now, uh, the Taliban, you know, ha- ta- ta- Taliban is speaking from, from the position of strength at this point of time, right? They have defeated um, yet another superpower. After having defeated the uh, Soviet Union in the 1980s, they came to power in the 1990-1996. They ruled Afghanistan till 2001. And then, of course, you have the entire 9-11. And uh, they were were sort of driven out of power in Kabul. And 20 years, the Americans stayed there. They couldn't. And they were fighting the Taliban to the nail. And they haven't managed to 
um, um, you know, eliminate the Taliban, which simply means that uh, they are a force to reckon with and they will continue to be uh, there whether we like it or not. Now, as far as popular support is concerned, there is there is some popular support within the uh, Pashtun areas of uh, Afghanistan, bordering, uh, bordering Pakistan. Uh, there are also, of course, other uh, minorities in Afghanistan. There are um, Uzbeks, Hazaras, whatnot. Uh, the Taliban is also, I mean, I, I, I think that's one of the arguments that I'm trying to make uh, in my articles and in my tweets in the recent uh, days, that Taliban 2.0 may be different from uh, Taliban 1.0. Now, uh, whether or not they are different, uh, I'm of the opinion that India should deal with, uh, India should uh, reach out to them, talk to them, and I have my own business, I've explained that. Uh, but if Taliban does have some uh, popular support and they're reaching out to more and more minorities in Afghanistan, um, uh, the, the, the difference between Taliban 1.0 and 2.0, to my mind, are one. Taliban 1.0 was not really recognized by, uh, was not given legitimacy by a lot of uh, members of the international community. I think there were just two or three states that recognized the Taliban government from 1960 to 2001. Today, a lot more uh, actors are willing to talk to, negotiate, recognize, do business with the Taliban. That's one very uh, big uh, difference. The other one is Taliban 1.0 was more or less a um, you know instrument of the Pakistani deep state, the ISI and the army, but. Today, the uh, Taliban 2.0 is really not, and, and, and you know, I mean, in India, we'd like to sort of say, you know, it's, it's a puppet of the ISI and the Pakistan army, but I have a slightly different take. I think there are, there are wheels within wheels. There are, uh, you know, far, far too many factions within the Taliban to say that, hey, they are a monolith and they are completely controlled by the Rawalpindi general headquarters. No, I don't, I don't think that is how it works. So where do they get Today, the resources? Several factions. But where, where do they get the resources oh, from? They, uh, like, for example, I remember Taliban 1.0, two or three things that I said, I think this Taliban wants to be seen as someone who can sit at the international table and are, you know, in the know on international affairs and not just, you know, some primitive-minded, right. you know, tribes right. coming together and killing people. But yet, there is a fear that they will do exactly that, you know, have these spectacles of death. So, A, but so far they have denied any hand in the murder of... Danish Siddiq, the Reuters journalist, Pulitzer Prize winning. Uh, B, um, this resources that they get, the Taliban 1.0 used to have this poppy cultivations. They had, you know, they were one of the largest suppliers of all the raw materials for cocaine and other drugs. But where do, where do they get the resources from? You know, to, to keep so many people motivated, armed, you know, empowered and, and have resources to them, where is it coming from? Well, I mean, motivation, of course, is not uh, entirely material in nature, right? I mean, it's also religious motivation. There is also certain uh, ideological, puritanical motivation that they, that is there. But, but more importantly, I mean, there is, of course, resources coming from uh, from Pakistan. There is resources coming from. You remember, there is a million plus refugee Afghan refugees staying um, in in Pakistan, uh, adjacent to Afghanistan. So there's a lot of money coming from there, and there and these people are collecting taxes now. The moment they take over a district or a village. They start a tax collection. So the entire tax collection machinery um, in that part will be under the Taliban. So money is not a uh, huge problem for these guys. They have survived worse times and, and they will now survive um, um, the, these times as well. Now, um, as far as I mean, th th there was another part to your question, which is about the atrocities committed by the Taliban right now. 
and here is why when i say listen there are there are the sophisticated worldly wise um, internationally exposed internationally socialized um, taliban leaders sitting in doha talking to the americans the mi6 the cia that this and the other and then there are the uh, leaders of the taliban leaders who are in quetta pakistan or our parts of pakistan peshawar and then there are guys who are working who are, who are fighting on the ground now there is no clear coordination among doha um, quetta and and say uh, the fighters on the ground these are these are disparate factions sometimes there is no communication sometimes you know these are there's a these are opportunistic opportunistic factions sometimes so if 20 say the other day 20 um, surrendering uh, afghan soldiers were killed by the taliban now you may say hey i mean you guys are of course they are responsible for that but you know, when you look at a group like Taliban, um, it is wrong to look at the Taliban as if they are one group like the Indian Army. No, they are not. That's not how it works in, in, in sort of chaotic uh, civil war-like conditions. So uh, they may have, I'm sure they have killed uh, these 20 uh, Afghan soldiers. But was that a, a function of the direct order given by the leadership sitting in Doha or in Quetta? I am not so sure about that. So it's not I such a discipline. It, it's not a disciplined entity that takes orders. Everyone is to an extent autonomous as well. Absolutely, yes. I mean, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a student. I'm a, I'm a student of um, um, international relations and military uh, issues, and I can tell you, even the most disciplined armies sometimes have. Um, you know the the frontline factions, or the, sorry, the frontline formations behaving you know, pretty autonomously. And in in, in my book, uh, Line on Fire, I call that on, on because I study the line of control. Um, soldiers on either side take autonomous actions without necessarily getting um, any any go ahead from Delhi or the military headquarters. And, and I call that I call that autonomous military factors, which means soldiers on the ground. Uh, you know there there is friction happening there. There are all kinds of activities happening there. They do function even like that autonomously, even in traditional militaries. So this is a militia. This is a militia. So they will be like they will be function. at a different level, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So there is absolutely there is no there is no uh, reason to doubt that part. Now, so you know, so when I when I say we must therefore there are I mean, let me let me you asked about implications right in the beginning. One implication clearly is that um, um, you know in in the in the late 1980s and early 1990s when the Taliban when the mujahideen so-called mujahideen war entered in Afghanistan and Soviet Union disintegrated the Talibs were uh, pretty uh, jobless and the ISI brought some of them to Kashmir to fight the Indian armed forces. Now I don't foresee that happening. They are not going to be uh, you know transported to Kashmir to fight the Indian forces. In any case, even if they come, the Indian forces are pretty well perched in, uh, in, 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 in the valley. But the, the problem really is the psychological um, uh, inspiration. Now, the Kashmiri boys, uh, unhappy as they are, uh, at least some of them, with the Indian state, looking at what's happening in Afghanistan, hey, these guys, the Talibs, have de defeated two superpowers in a row the Soviet Union, um, um, now Russia, and the United States of America. If they can defeat the superpowers, well, we can probably take on the might of the Indian state to the Indian Army too. This is uh, that must be completely nonsensical as a belief, but it's a belief nevertheless. And and in some of these cases, it is the belief that drives you. Clearly, a militant in Kashmir probably doesn't last uh, a, even even a few months. It doesn't matter. It's a belief that matters. So uh, just so one... I think I think we have we have a belief. Yeah. yeah. So uh, one more question, and then you know I just open it out to Manisha and Raman sir. <clears throat> China's One Belt One Road initiative 
does any part of it go through afghanistan because if it does then they have a huge leverage on china and you know they can get a lot of money from there because what i read a few years ago when this one belt one road initiative was being touted as like the biggest infrastructure push ever and i think that two big chinese banks that are leveraged on this if if any part of afghanistan impacts this then either the chinese economy could sink because you can't control the taliban for i understand or conversely the taliban can get very rich from chinese money as just purely as as safekeeping but any significant part of one belt one road passes through afghanistan you know that's that's an absolutely important question i'll tell you why the the soviet union tried with force to discipline these guys right the americans tried uh, to discipline these guys again with force what the chinese are doing is pretty smart and i i think that's where the indian focus should be the chinese are being very careful they're very being very subtle nimble they're reaching out to taliban leaders they have, they were part of the i mean the mari talks in 2015 uh the russians were part of it the chinese were part of it the americans were part of it the pakistanis were part of it the, the, the taliban were part of it they are part of these negotiations they are reaching out to ghani ashraf ghani the president of pakistan they are reaching out to taliban leaders they are uh, they they are doing mining business in afghanistan they want to certainly extend the oh, the one belt one road uh, the bri project to central asia through um afghanistan they have clear business plans in afghanistan now the question is uh the brits the uh, i mean during the great game the brits the soviets the americans all of them try to discipline the afghans using force the chinese are uh, trying to woo them with money and with what with, with with infrastructure and the development will that succeed question number one and I, i think i think that's probably not an entirely bad way of going about given the history of afghanistan and in some ways uh number 2 you know this is also probably the most opportune time for china to do precisely what it is doing in afghanistan because china has the support of all the neighbors right china has the support of um the pakistanis china has the support of the russians china has the support of the iranians china has the support of um the central government in kabul and it has access to taliban what more does china need so and, and the americans have gone home the americans are nowhere to be seen so china has a has 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 a free hand in afghanistan if they play their cards well uh, and i'm sorry to say this <laughs> because I'm, as an indian indian security analyst i think china is probably going to gain an upper hand in afghanistan in the days to come and i think we probably i mean obviously the, the, the rupee cannot uh, match the yuan uh, but i think we should have been more proactive early on uh, before all this happened it's probably even today We are, we are sort of half embarrassed that you know, uh, very uneasy about reaching out to Taliban, very meandering sort of approach. Um, but yes, China is playing a big role, and I, I think it's going to play a bigger role in the days to come. But but there are Uyghurs militants in Taliban, right? In Taliban-controlled areas. So how is how does that work? Um, a sprinkling of that. It's like saying that are there Punjabis in uh, uh, in the ranks of the Taliban? Yes, um, there there are. Uh, but but given the fact that if the Taliban can today say that we are against Daesh, we will not let the Islamic State have. uh so called islamic state have a presence in afghanistan that we are not going to host the al qaeda in afghanistan if we become um, the government in afghanistan they could also probably tomorrow turn around and say we have nothing to do with the uyghurs uh we uh, you know so 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 i i i think the reason china is reaching out to these guys and talking to them and talking about money and infrastructure is because china is also concerned about the proximity 
uh, uh, to the um, uh, Xinjiang and the Uyghur, the resistance groups, etc. So Taliban could potentially say we have nothing to do with the Uyghurs, just like the Pakistanis, so worried about what's happening in Kashmir and Kashmiri Muslims, or the Muslims in India are simply not worried about the Uyghurs in, uh, in, in, in Xinjiang when Imran Khan was asked about, he said, I have no idea what's happening there, right? So, so uh, the, uh, Pakistan may be worried, but I think China is less worried. Even if China is worried, I think they will probably try and uh, uh, bribe their way into or, or pay their way into um, the leadership uh, of the Taliban. So, um, Manisha, if you could just come in on this. I wanted to speak about Danish, you know, the phenomenal photojournalist whose pho- photographs captured the imagination of all of us, of the world, uh, that famous burning pie photograph for which um, he got a lot of very bigoted hate on social media, unsurprisingly. Uh, he died while on duty, while doing what he did, which was being a photographer, uh, bringing you the news so that you see the reality as it happens and not the spun reality which these studio anchors spin. He used to be on the ground taking maximum risk with much less return than the ones who are surviving on government ads while discrediting the work of people like him uh, all the time. But there were reports that the Taliban did... In fact, we have carried one where the Taliban did not initially return his body as asked. In fact, uh, you know, news don't carried that piece. Can you just clarify... A, I mean, of course, there's no 100% certainty because I guess there is no, you know, prime first-hand witness. But what are the circumstances that led to the return of his body? And did the Taliban, in fact, actually keep it and not want to return it for four days? Is, is that correct? Well, that's what we've heard. Uh, so Danish was reporting from the Kandahar province and he was embedded with the Afghan forces. So a high-risk job because Afghan forces, as we know, is in a very intense battle with Taliban. And what Ruchi did was, uh, the reporter who was based in Kabul, she spoke to villagers in and around that area. She also tried to speak to the shopkeepers and the market. So Danish was shot at in the market along with another Afghan force uh, soldier. And uh, when she spoke to the villagers there, they said that they killed him and kept his body. And the villagers there uh, sort of contacted the Taliban and the Red Crescent also, and they weren't willing to return it. And there were some negotiations that were happening. And then they handed the body over in about three to four hours. There's also, we were also told by locals there that the Taliban disrespected and mutilated his body. This is also reported by India Today's Ashraf Wani, who's the only Indian journalist right now from a mainstream television channel in Kabul. So he spoke to Afghan forces there and they said that they basically, after shooting him, they ran the car over him uh, in a sort of a disrespect. I know from colleagues in the industry who I can't name, but I mean, you know, when a person like Danish dies, there are, you know, conversations on the exact nature of the assault on him. So a lot of people, what, what was told to me was that he was targeted by the Taliban. So all this thing about, sorry, we didn't know, doesn't seem to be true. There wasn't a spray of bullets at the marketplace where he was targeted and there was a single shot. So it appears that Taliban did target Danish. And usually in these war zones, journalists are very clearly identifiable by the vest they wear. In Danish's case, it was a very bright blue kind of a vest with press written on it. So likely they knew that they were targeting a press person. If not an Indian, then at least a press person. So that's what we know. But of course, with such an intense battle going on, it's very hard to really know the truth of what happened. And of course, Afghan forces are also in a battle with the Taliban. So they will also say things 
which work completely against the taliban while the taliban is issuing press releases and saying sorry blah 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 but i wouldn't hold i mean i wouldn't hold it past them there was also a debate on this issue on social media uh, whether media organizations like reuters or anybody should send you know reporters and photojournalists to Uh, such war zones such war zones what is your view my view is yes mm-hmm. i am totally in favor of that man we should take all the precautions but it's a and risky job and after that it's a risky job it's a professional hazard so if yeah. if it happens fine but that's my opinion so i just i'm throwing it to what is you. your view happy mon like uh, i you know two things one i think this point that manisha made earlier uh, you know these are not two professional armies fighting in a very civilized manner uh, you know obviously there are there are norms and uh, rules and principles governing uh, laws of war uh, governing you know wars internationally it is not as if the taliban is fighting a war based on the strictures and do's and don'ts of uh, the laws of war that is accepted internationally um of course the afghan national defense forces are a professional army but uh, the taliban is not um so first of all um in if if he if danish was i mean it's it's really sad that he got killed while uh, on duty but if he was embedded uh, in with a convoy of the afghan forces uh, and that was ambushed by the taliban militants it's uh, or taliban terrorist militants whatever you want to call them it's possible that he was killed 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 uh, because he was embedded with uh, the um, um, afghan forces it it happens yeah. it happens even when two professional uh, militaries uh, you know fight fight against each other so this is a professional military versus a uh, group of militias uh, who are probably not uh, who never seen a military academy or anything of that kind uh, who probably can't read and write apart from say perhaps uh, uh religious text so i wouldn't have great expectations of uh, of the taliban or the groups within groups within groups of the taliban uh to be cognizant and aware of uh, the rules of fighting interna- uh, 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 wars and this is not even a this is a, from the afghan point of view or taliban point of view this is not even an uh, interstate war this is an intrastate war right i mean it's happening within the uh within the uh, within, within afghanistan now Uh, but having said that i mean you know um, should should news organizations send um, the reporters to cover wars of course yes uh, uh, just like um, military sends soldiers to fight wars um, um, that's 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 their job the the job of the news organizations is to send uh, um, their people to cover um, uh, these wars uh i mean <laughs> i remember uh, uh, traveling uh, on the pakistani side of the line of control when uh, when 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 the pakistani brigadier telling me listen i mean you know you are in you you're sort of traveling in an area with me where firing can't break out at any point of time right so you they don't know the the indian indian guy sitting in the in the in the, the bunkers don't know that that you are an indian uh, so this seems to be a good day there is no firing taking place anywhere but two days ago there was firing um you know so and, and i am an academic and I, i i knew the risks of traveling with the pakistan army on the pakistani side staying with them anything could happen but that's a risk that this risk that i took i think we all take professional risks but i think it is important to have the um uh, news organizations uh, news organizations reuters has very good training unlike uh, many of the indian news organizations uh, danish had also been to mosul hmm. he had been to afghanistan earlier also and if you look at his body of work in india i mean right. phenomenal yeah, journey for the past 2 years he's covered everything from riots in fact one of our reports that we did on his funeral 
you know he's also mentored a lot of young photojournalists and one of the young guys said that you know he did say that covering riots is sometimes equally dangerous as covering a war because a mob is so unpredictable right. you know it is so you never know how a mob targets you and the modern warfare That's is compl- is is guerrilla war mm, so right. in in kashmir also when we yeah. used to go so we were told that if you move with the army you, you will be an easy target yes yeah, so so don't move with the army in fact there was in fact there was a dd news journalist in 2018 who was moving with the police uh-huh. in dantewada and he right. he was ambushed by locals so traveling with the forces in these areas is of course fraught with i mean it's i mean it is it's are, both ways sometimes you need them sometimes it's yes, a liability yes. sometimes it's an asset i think it works both ways but i mean people like danish of course they went to the front although we have we do have certain broadcast channels of india who uh, in the mock ups you know when they are doing these dry runs of how you would attack they pretend that they are at the border and there's something happening that's not happening it's yeah. it's an act it's quite rather disgraceful when anchors do that i mean rocky and mayur used to do that when we used to do have in a plate in haryana we would be pretending that we are but that was clearly stated this is a mock up this is mm-hmm. not real mm-hmm. but uh, many of these channels pretend like it's it's some real shit the way they whispering etc but uh, yeah danish you know i i i haven't met him but of all the people i've spoken to he really seemed like a really sweet his pictures speak amazing amazingly sweet a guy committed to journalism and uh, it, it's a big loss and i think it is quite sad that the prime minister uh, did not mention him while uh, the heads of state of two other countries at least two other countries including afghanistan uh, specifically you know condoned his passing but the indian prime minister did not uh, so yeah that is really pathetic because he's an indian citizen at the end of the day who was there i mean it's really really i mean the pe- the pettiness that we discussed i i think the, the level of pettiness of this regime is off oh my god and a pulitzer i mean somebody who bought your country so much uh, so many so many accolades for his covering of the rohingya re- uh, crisis you know he won the pulitzer for that uh, so what a shame So happy man I want to briefly discuss one more thing uh, and after that you know uh, I will thank you for your time and you can carry on but before I move on to the olympics uh, do you have anything to add on this afghanistan piece that you know you you yeah. think noteworthy yeah you know I, I i i i should i should say that I mean, i wrote, i i i keep writing about afghanistan and people keep calling me a uh, you know terrorist friendly um, uh, writer enabler of um, oppression fraud leftist fraud secularist that this and the other uh, you know but i i basically want to say that uh, first um, of all you know not all states not all uh, contract situations are equal uh, it is important for us to sort of distinguish um, one from the other and and sort of see for what is uh, what 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 is really taking place um i mean and and i think i think today of course we are in the 21st century violence has no place um there are certain rules and regulations in the conduct of international relations etc um but let us also i mean as as a political scientist i would say as a, as a, as a human i am pained by the atrocities committed by the taliban and they shouldn't happen and i think the more the the earlier we get into a conversation with the taliban and and, and reach a settlement in afghanistan it is it is good for everybody but i would also say that you know i you know there's this movie cliffhanger uh, and 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 uh, i think silver stallion star or something like that yeah there is and 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 this um, villain in that movie eric carlen and this guy says 
you kill a few people and they call you a murderer. You kill a million, they call you a conqueror, right? I mean, right. Uh, and and there is there is there is this historian, Western historian Charles Tilly. He talks about how Western states came into existence, and and there's this famous quote. He says, "Wars made states," and and he says, "War making and state making are." organized crimes now i'm i'm say i'm bringing that history from the 16th century 17th century 18th century just to tell you how modern states came into existence now so when we when we look at afghanistan obviously this is this is the 21st century uh, we can't really we can't certainly justify at all what's happening in afghanistan but i think um, we don't need to be entirely taking this very high moral position on how can we talk to these people Wait a minute. There is no way but to talk to these people. Yeah, I mean, even uh, that's that's the way. I mean, yeah. you talk to the country that dropped the only atomic bomb ever. You know, wiping out. You, you know, overnight in the in the, in the blink cities. of an eye, uh, two cities, and that yeah. they were not just military targets, but the world does business with them. So, Absolutely. yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I don't think, but the, I think the only thing, the tricky thing for India would be that if they were to, you know, talk to the Taliban and do business, it would. completely alienate their base not just their base the prime the, the the strongest supporters of the you know bjp would be saying dude how can you talk to the taliban unless they spin it that we will learn from the taliban that how we can establish a similar state here for hindus <laughs> that is the only way they can they can sell this to their base otherwise their base will not accept <laughs> that conversation i agree this is this is and more importantly i think the the question that will be asked tomorrow if india reaches out to taliban and has a um, honest open conversation with the taliban about hey don't sort of come after us like ich one for a hijack in kandahar and that and the other the question that will be asked when if you can talk to these guys why can't you talk to the huriyat conference in kashmir why can't right. you talk to the hizbul mujahideen in kashmir that is and these questions will be asked Um, obviously, you can say. I mean, there is no morality in international politics. You talk to whoever you uh, think your national interest should serve by talking to, etc. But these are questions that will be asked. And plus, uh, as Abhinandan pointed out, um, you know, the the base will be very unhappy. How do you justify? There's no way to justify that. I just have one intervention to make, though. Like when you say India should talk to Taliban, to what end should we be talking to them? Because right now there's a war going on. Taliban is. a terror organization and i mean in most ways they've committed gross human rights violations and i was in fact watching this india today a good discussion for a change by rahul kaval where there's an afghan lady who's come and she said that people who want to talk to taliban are on the wrong side of history the afghan forces will defeat the taliban and this is not a force that is you know just going to sit and say oh yeah okay we are going to be democratic women are going to have rights and all already you are seeing you know uh, gains that were made going on the back track with regards to women's rights so yeah. i mean to my mind i'm also thinking what do we talk to them about and why and isn't it better to right now give complete support to the afghan forces to defeat the taliban well, first of, in whatever right. way thanks manisha i think first of all the afghan forces will not be able to there's no chance uh, the afghan forces will be able to defeat the taliban that's not happening with the support of the american forces thousands of them uh, stationed in afghanistan if they could not defeat the taliban there is no chance that the afghan forces on their own will uh, will defeat the taliban and and you and of course you can't account in the pakistan army along with that number one number two you're right about uh, the 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 puritanical agenda of the taliban they are uh, i mean they have a history of atrocities against women and minorities but i think there are statements coming from parts of the taliban factions of the taliban that they are 
okay with women's education. Uh, they are all right with uh, women going to uh, work, uh, provided they have a, a burqa or whatever uh, uh, you know that, that they have to have. And 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 now they're reaching out to Hazaras and uh, Uzbeks and other minorities in Afghanistan. It is not a perfect country no arrangement in that country is going to be perfect um now if we don't talk to them who is going to talk to them if we go to if we don't talk to them the chinese will talk to them the the, the pakistanis will talk to them and everyone else will talk to them and there is no way that we are going to spill blood in afghanistan sending our troops to support the Ghani regime, which is going to fall any time uh, in, the, in the in the months or years to come. So, you know, whichever way you look at it, from a national security point of view, from a strategic point of view, India has no option but to engage these guys. And from a humanitarian point of view, I see Manish what you were saying, but I think even from a humanitarian point of view, Taliban 2.0, to my mind, is sort of different from Taliban 1.0. And I'll, I'll just finish with one more sentence. You know, in 2016, I was at a meeting in Doha, uh, organized by the Paguas uh, with the Taliban leadership there. 14 of them turned up in that meeting, the entire political delegation of the Taliban in, uh, in, in Doha. And, one of, and, and the leader of the delegation, Mr. Stanek Zai, and I was the only Indian there, took me aside and said, why is that the Indians don't engage us? If you don't engage us, you are letting the ISI solely uh, engages and is that is that is that a, is that a good thing for you? Is that a smart thing for you to do? So I think while there are humanitarian concerns, clear humanitarian concerns, I do think that the more you socialize them, the more you mainstream them, the more they will change. And there and there are signs of change. There are and as I said, this is not a monolith. There are different kinds of Taliban there, uh, and, and 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 that's the humanitarian part. And from a national security point of view, we have no choice. But so, but but as Abhinandan said, will we do it? No, I mean, uh, just to add to what Happy Month said, uh, you know, the exact same question that Manisha asked, I was actually on um, when we were still, I was still invited to seminars and conferences overseas and we could travel. Uh, I had uh, attended one in Morocco and I met uh, someone uh, from Afghanistan whose father had served in the Taliban regime. And this uh, young person was extremely well-educated, um, you know, had been educated in the West, was very liberal. I mean, was not burqa or hijab wearing, was, you know, had views and lived a life that was completely, that, that would, you know, make the Punjabis of Delhi blush. And when I found out over dinner, I was like, how do you kind of resolve that, that, you know, uh, your dad served on the Taliban regime? And what this person hmm. told me was that, what do you expect? You, that it's not a Taliban doesn't have popular support. Thirty so percent of my country actually supported them. So what do I say? That I, yeah. you know, he doesn't. And this was a man who was trying to put out a moderate face, was trying to be a softening factor. And if you don't talk to them, who will? Pakistan will. Someone else will. Just like in Sri Lanka, when the IPKF went. I mean, technically, I mean, let's strip it down to its bare bones. An Indian army was helping a Sinhalese government crush an organization, which is a terror organization that was standing up for Tamils, mm -hmm. which actually had to an extent something to be unhappy about. The Tamils were not treated well there. And full disclosure, I'm half Tamil myself. Right. So right. Rajiv Gandhi sent an Indian army to kill Tamils for, mm -hmm. for, for someone who was not that way inherently, you know, Indian in the Indian sense. So, but if we wouldn't, then China would, Pakistan would. So that was... 
I mean, that, that in, yep. governance yep. is a flexible business. Governance is not a rigid business. Yep. And unfortunately, uh, that's, that's how it is. Yeah. But the Taliban, I mean, in the past... Yeah, it's it's messy. Mm. It's never clean. Mm. No, Taliban's, uh, you know, in the past are so notorious when it comes to the human rights. Oh man, it's I mean, women, women rights, and we have read those books. I mean, the I first idea, even as an Indian, that comes to my mind. I mean, of course, what hap- what Happy Moon has said is right. I mean, uh, that we need to engage them. I mean, I'm totally uh, on the same page. And even if you but, do it, but as as an individual, it's yeah, difficult. It's, it, of course, it's nauseating. I mean, the bringing How down of the Bamiyan, like the Bamiyan Buddhas. You know, the, yeah. the, all the in the when they used to have those uh, in stadiums where you know the Afghans used to play football, they used to kill people and you know have a spectacle of it. it was so of course at a but at a at a level of international relations, like I think even if you on the front condemn it, at the back everyone's talking to everybody else. Now. Um, I just want to quickly talk about the Olympics, which uh, I think while you're listening to this, the opening ceremony will already have been over. Must be happening. It is uh, as we're recording this, but uh, it has been an Olympic like no other. First of all, it's delayed by a year. Most of the people in Tokyo apparently don't want it. So (laughs) they are saying that we don't want you here. There have been already multiple cases of isolation. There have been multiple cases of individuals and teams withdrawing because they tested positive after... And now recently, uh, the creative director uh, of the opening ceremony, uh, he was fired. His name is Kentaro Kobayashi. He had been a member of a popular you know, comedy duo and he had made some jokes in the 90s about the Holocaust. Before that, um, there was the composer who had composed the music for the opening, Keigo Oyamada. Uh, he was forced to resign because an, a video emerged where he was bragging about bullying you know, uh, differently abled children when he was a schoolboy. And uh, before this, of course, the chief had also resigned for some other reasons. So this has been one of the most bad Olympics. Matlab, now they're just going ahead with it. Ki bhai chalo, dal ban gai, ab khani so that is how it is, at least in the Western media that I watch, which is, you know, BBC, CNN. Like, and, and they're talking about Japanese only. You know, there's, it's like, now we have, like, for example, the former... Uh, Prime Minister, what's his name? Abe. Um, what's Abe's full name? Shinzo, Shinzo Abe. Shinzo Abe is not attending the opening ceremony because local politics, whatever. So one has this Olympics actually completely, I mean, it's just a formality. It is not going to achieve what the Olympics is supposed to. Like, you know, that Olympic ad that you are my enemy, you are my adversary, not my enemy. That, you know, competing sportsmanship, building bridges, and one second question I have is, should people be fired because of something they did in school, no matter how hideous? Like, school kids are cruel. Is this going too far? Uh, Manisha, you want to go first? No, please go ahead. Okay, Raman, sir, why don't you go first? No, no, I think once the sports will start happening, the spirit is going to come. I am, I doggedly watch Olympics. You know, ever since I, I'm a sports enthusiast, so I, I love football. And I'm watching, in fact, football, it, which has already started. Mm, Yesterday, yes. I saw that Brazil versus, uh, you know, and the women's, Germany. And the U.S. women's team ah, also US lost women's to team Sweden, also lost. correct. Ah, so, so I think, I, think once, I think the spirit of Olympics is all together. Despite all the controversies, despite the fact that the athletes have to go through, you know, two, two test, COVID tests a day, 
two or three covid tests a day but i think once the sports once once the games will start you will really enjoy it in fact it's going to be one of my recommendations that we must watch olympics okay great uh, happy man you have a view on this i have i have very i mean i have absolutely no views on that i'm i don't think i'm going to watch this uh, with as much uh, uh, you know happiness as i used to watch uh, the other uh, you know editions of the olympics this is a washout um, hmm. sorry to put it but on the other question that you raised i mean you know that's that's an interesting question that you raised abhinandan should we be held accountable for uh, what we said or did um, say when we were still in school that's a good question i mean if i if i were to be held accountable for accountable for what i said when i was say 14 years 13 years 15 years i would be in deep trouble so <laughs> i i believe that, that <laughs> i i would be in deep I trouble mean, however <laughs> were i held accountable for what i said on the hafta like 4 years ago <laughs> so you said <laughs> <laughs> there you go <laughs> so i think we need to be <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I mean, I, I want to, you know, get the nuance right that although I, what they're saying is that because this guy, even as an adult, spoke about that experience unapologetically on television or on some press a few years ago, I get it. What they're saying is that okay. Okay, he's yeah. being punished because yeah. even as an adult, he wasn't remorseful. But I'm wondering, even if he was, would would the outcome change? Would the fact that he did something as a schoolboy? actually impact because yeah. there have been cases where this has happened you know someone tweeted something as as a college kid or a school boy or something so manisha you have a view on this uh, on both mm, i think organizationally at least uh, that wouldn't have impacted i mean the world of social media is different but uh, organizationally i think if he had shown remorse or said sorry or whatever i think it would have had some impact that he's not apologized mm. at all for his conduct like there's no, no statement he has anyway. he has now he has now but but after uh, after it came to light again but uh, i mean it, it's a basically it's i mean i don't have a view that whether he should he shouldn't but it just you know puts up stuff but that but the first time as an adult when it was pointed out ki bhai this is what you've done how is it that he wasn't remorseful like what is the proof of that i, that, like, I don't know the specifics i i don't know the specifics all i read uh, in, in that article was which i think was on bbc.com that he appeared in the media and he wasn't remorseful of having behaved like that as a schoolboy so okay. that that's I all i know i would want to see that uh, interaction because sometimes yeah people's expectations of remorse also differ you know like did he not cry and that's why he wasn't remorseful or was, <laughs> i mean you know like good point the specifics the exact nature of the interaction would be important yeah. to note i think the game is bigger than any of us mm. once they will start breaking the records mm. world records and all you are going to enjoy it i wonder if this young boy is going to be running i haven't seen this uh, this young american sensation 100 meter sensation who's broken i think he's 17 and he's broken usain bolt's record uh-huh. of 100 200 from when usain was the same age i think the under 18 category or whatever i wonder if he'll run but the thing i enjoy most about the olympics are the uh, the floor exercises mm. the gymnastics and the rings rings and the you know the, the horse i mean i think when you see that that just makes you including that american young girl you know who was um, who's written that book simon um who was one of the victims of that coach <laughs> i'll just get right, i'll just get right, her name right. in fact uh, it's a wonderful book um, in fact we should maybe recommend it when you see those kind of exercises is when you stay riveted to the television yes. like i that's the same thing olympics you know whenever they come yes i may not watch the other but the the gymnastics i can't not ah, watch it just is magnificent, magnificent. 
just and it goes on for four five days. Yeah. Um. So on that note, uh, we shall finish the hafta with a. Uh, thank you to Happy Mon. I'm going to read the emails of the subscribers, but uh, you know, Happy Mon can carry on. He's given us an hour and a half. But before that, Happy Mon, if you could give us a recommendation that would enrich the lives of our listeners. No, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to disappoint you because my recommendation is not really very, very surprising. I, you know, because I, I sort of started watching this stuff pretty late. I only finished reading it, watching it um, recently. The Family Man. And I tell you why I like it and why I don't like it. Um, and I, I think this is something that uh, is also connected to what we were discussing today about Taliban, Afghanistan, war, peace, and all of that. I think what is good about the series, um, uh, the Family Man, is that it's, it's sort of politically very nuanced and and, and very conflict sensitive, right? This guy, you know, uh, when when they look at the um, the LTTE, the return of the LTTE, looking at various conflicts and why they fight. You know, there's there are no there are no huge moral judgments there. I think that's a that's a good part of the uh, whole story, as it were, of of Anandi Man. And but I think where I have an issue with the whole plot um, is that you know the issues of war and peace tend to get very normalized and routinized, right? I mean, where where Manoj Bajpayee says. You know, don't question uh, uh, the government. Don't question what the leader is saying. It is our duty. We just do it. You know, there is a certain amount of fatalism in that, right? I mean, don't question. Don't ask questions. Um, you know, just that uh, it's not in our place to ask questions. No, I think citizens should ask questions. Who are there? Uh, one of the problems I think in our country today is also that I mean, you know, the be it the ED or the income tax or the CBI or various organizations are asked to do things. Not necessarily sometimes legal, but they still do it. But if they learn to ask some questions here and there, they probably end up not doing it. So the point that I think I'm trying to make is that that fatalism about let's not ask questions, let's just do our duty and go home and have dinner and sleep. I think that's not something that is palatable to me. Sorry for disappointing. But, no, you know, not a disappointment at all. Sort of recommendation. It's Even a, I liked it. <laughs> mm, that's, that's, so that's great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Happy Mon. Uh, uh, look forward to reading more of your work and I hope for the next list that is uploaded or downloaded or released, we find your name as uh, an infected I phone. So. I seriously, <laughs> I seriously hope so. <laughs> thank you, Abhinandan. Thank you. Thank you, Raman. Thank, <laughs> you, Maraj, thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have fun. Cheers. Bye-bye. Now, let's just move on to the emails that have come from our subscribers. Uh, and before I start, I would just like to remind you that to keep your emails Below 250 words, it is a request I make repeatedly. Still, many are coming more than 250 words. So what we are actually doing is we have a standard form, a Google form that we are going to be putting. Instead of you having to write emails, you just press on that link and you can choose the button which show you want to send the email to, Hafta, Charcha, Awful and Awesome Reporters Without Orders or whichever. And then it only allows you to type in 250 words. And we will only take emails from that form. So that should be up hopefully in the next couple of weeks. So that will save everybody the trouble. So this email, this subscriber wants to remain anonymous. Hi, this is regarding the discussion in the past two haftas. Why do we all need to be party of Abhinandan's rants or personal questions to experts? How is this different from Man Ki Baat? During the past hafta, he spent 10 minutes talking to Vivek Call about real estate. As he says in the end, this is his advice to people who are looking to invest. Why should all podcast listeners be exposed to if he wants validation of his opinion? Let him do it on his personal time and cost. And how is this not misusing public subscriber money to seek validate personal investment advice? People have subscribed to NL because of podcasts mostly. 
At least I have. Caravan features are better investigated and provide much more in-depth analysis. To top it all, you guys rambled for 10 minutes before I got to have a wake. I listened to podcasts while running and on web browser, I can't stop and jump. Please keep this in mind. NL Hafta is not your personal time with experts. It is shared time for all subscribers. Thank you. So I'll call you NC since those are your initials. Sorry, NC, if I offended you with my personal rants, etc. It just so happened that the week that he came here, I think the week before that, uh, Vivek had written a long piece on why real estate, it doesn't make sense to buy real estate. So uh, this was, I think it was in the Mint or was it on his personal blog? Because he also has a personal blog now. It was a very good piece. So I just thought it would be good if he spoke about that because real estate is something that may not be interest to you, but it is a bubble that many people have been expecting to burst for the longest time. And uh, I have actually no interest in buying real estate in my life. I have already made up my mind on that. <laughs> I just thought it would be an interesting discussion because we had Vivek who had recently written about that. Uh, then Nikhil says, hey, not complaining. Uh, just don't let Vivek talk so much. Okay, bye. Okay, Nikhil, I don't know what the context is, but I don't think Vivek spoke any more or less than other guests. Yeah, I think he's fabulous. So uh, even I, I love listening to Vivek. this request. <laughs> so, Nikhil, your re- request has been vetoed by your previous subscriber and, and by Manisha. Then Divya Marwa says, I'm a regular listener of Hafta and use it to quench my need to listen to some debate about current events. One huge point I want to make is that over the last few episodes, I've noticed the panel's ability to maintain a continuous discussion on a topic. Listening becomes so difficult when the speakers keep moving the context too quickly and results in minor migraine just to keep up with what we're talking about. Earnest request to change this so we can absorb some information from the discussion. Hope this improves it further. So Divya, actually, yes, you have noticed uh, that the last two or three, we've just kept it at two or three issues. Earlier, we used to try to pack five or six things into Hafta. But now we just keep it at two or three, and which is what we'll be doing from now on. Sarfaraz Khan says, Hi guys, loved your team's work. Sorry about the subject. By subject, Sarfaraz means the subject read very upset with NL Hafta. So Sarfaraz goes on to say, but you guys seem to mostly pick angry subscribers. So trying to mimic one. Okay, I just have one question. I believe that Congress is the actual B team of the BJP and work behind closed doors to make sure no other credible opposition leader or party comes to power. Maybe BJP has achieved this through many of their tactics. Your opinion, Sarfaraz. Sarfaraz, we don't necessarily um, uh, choose angry subscribers. In fact, we've been criticized that we only choose people who are praising us. (laughs) So, so, but Lippi, who is very calm like the Buddha, our producer, she picks the, the letters. So please blame her. Uh, so on this subject, I disagree with you. I don't think Congress is the B team of the BJP. I don't even think Asaduddin Uwaisi is the B team of the BJP. Like he was being touted in Bengal by many, uh, you know, who were pro-Congress, even by journalists. I just think at different times, there are different priorities for different people. Like I think from Asaduddin Uwaisi's point of view, he was being called the vote katau, that he is just there to divide the Muslim mm-hmm. vote and therefore it will cost uh, Mamta and it will benefit the BJP. So he should not contest. I think that is a wrong way to look at things because more parties should emerge. It is like, uh, you know, when the AAP was being criticized that you are cutting the Congress vote and BJP will, well, they cut everybody's vote and they won in Delhi. But I think more and more parties and ideas should emerge. But yes, sometimes what it does is it helps. It helps benefiting one party I think that's a problem. I think what he's trying to say, and I agree, that uh, Congress with no leadership 
is proving to be a you know B team of VCs. I, I think his suggestion. I think his suggestion is it's by design. I don't mm, know. No, by design, to nahi hai. Mm. I mean, right now Congress is pretty weak mm. uh, in terms of organization, in terms of leadership as well. So it is more or less, you know, helping BJP to win elections after elections. Yeah. So that way. So I have said this in the past that if the Congress would wind up, it could really open up the market huh. for other credible parties. They are sucking up the oxygen in the room while not providing anything productive. But I mean, I I don't think that is a theorem that. It depends from state to state, region to region. I think it's complicated. Vanisha, you have you on this? I don't think Congress is the B team at all for BJP. I think he's being sarcastic. That's what I. Oh, okay. I don't know. Sir, for us, there's confusion here whether you're being sarcastic or you know. <laughs> then Abhishek says, "Hello, NL team. I've unfortunately been quite irregular in keeping up with the news in recent times, but the NL Sena article on who owns your media caught my eye. These the pieces show in stark detail how precarious the situation of current media business in India is." This made me think of how susceptible the media houses in our country are for a hostile corporate takeover. I'd like to know the panel's thoughts on whether there are any checks and balances in India towards preventing this from happening. Was this discussed before? If so, I must apologize if I missed it. How do the readers and common people know that, for example, Times of India is now officially a mouthpiece of certain ideology due to being held by shadow corporation aligned with the said ideology or any such thing? I can think of antitrust laws in the EU, but nothing akin to it in India comes to mind. As always, love your work. Keep it up. Get vaccinated. Stay safe. Abhishek, uh, we haven't discussed this in that detail, but we have it time to time. There are no regulations. Well, hostile takeovers, there are standard regulations in the market. Uh, but uh, when it comes to ownership, like there are certain ways, uh, there are certain regulations in the US and UK. Uh, you know, one is called 2020, which is in UK, which used to be that if your newspaper or your uh, news platform has 20% of the market, then no one person can have more than 20% of ownership. It has to be broken up. Uh, in US, you could not have three out of three. I mean, there they have radio, print, and television. So in different regions, you couldn't own all three. You had to own two out of three as in a controlling stake. So they would, but in India, there are no such laws. So that, that monopoly is possible uh, and likely. So yeah, there are no real checks and balances to that, if, if that's what you're asking. The only checks and balances to that is that it's such a high-risk, low-returns business, no one wants to get into it. <laughs> I remember... You don't even have any with... laws on monopoly, you know? Like in the US and UK, one person can't own... No, we have a competition you know... commissions. We had uh, a Monopoly and Restrictive Trade Practices Act. Uh, so th- we, we do have no, stuff no, uh, against cartel. commission doesn't stop media owners from uh, cross-ownership, no? No, but, I mean, I, we haven't reached that level yet that someone's complained. But, I mean, there are laws... I mean, I don't know if we've got to that stage yet. No, I have seen things happening, you know, like uh, when I was in DNA, I was traveling with Subhashendra. So, I mean, he's talking to another Media big shot. I won't hmm. name him. Uh, and ki, in Punjabi, he's saying, ki, main ki main radio hmm. radio so he was just telling him that. And then I later find about six months later, hmm. he has bought one. <laughs> so I mean, uh, yeah, but there's it's, it's so but it's commonly such a, happens. It's, I mean, there's no no check and balance. But news is such a there's high no. risk, low returns business that I mean, most people that's why do it only as a lobbying arm for their other industries. Uh, then Suraj says, I have been a subscriber for over a year, regular listener of Hafta, huge fan of nuisance and Tippani. I'm sending this letter to know about your opinion on ongoing political situation in India. 
uh, things are getting scarier day by day and I'm losing hope. I'm not focusing on nitty gritty, but want to draw your attention to the bigger picture. With a gradual decay in major institutions, it feels we are on a slippery slope from where you can only go lower. Just imagine a more ruthless leader without any checks and balances, twisting the system so much it will break. The current Godi media is in such a sorry state. Even after the carnage of the second wave, they are still playing look over there. It's frightening to see the second Sushant Singh wave uh, and the Kundra wave is sweeping the prime time when our already fragile democracy is at a stake after the revelation of rampant illegal snooping. How do these people sleep at night? I guess we could call it the Gujarat model. Keep up the good work. Our democracy needs superheroes like you. Thank you, Suraj. We are not superheroes. We just trying to do our work. A, I'm not as, uh, you know, I'm an optimist. So, I mean, you have to be. Uh, but yeah, it is scary when I see, you know, when, I mean, what you spoke about. In fact, I was fascinated. I was just seeing India Today was covering this Raj Kundra. Uh, Mundra Kundra, what's his Kundra. name? Kundra. 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 The story, like, it was like live coverage. The bus is here, it's here. And they had his photograph in one window. And in one big window, they had this screen with these women in seductive poses. Like, how is that relevant? Like, tell me, you know, it was just so stupid. They were like, I, I mean, a screenshot of the app. I think it's called Hot Films or something like that. And it was the, like, why is half the screen occupying that hot poses women? So it sells, you know, it has porn, it has Bollywood. I, there was not half the coverage given to the illegal taps. No, it must mm. be selling on TV, but I don't think the major newspapers like Indian Express, mm. even Times of India for that matter, they are not paying so much attention to yeah. Kundra. And, uh, and well, uh, they had a full page on Delhi Times, so they have a separate paper. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. But Delhi Times, is, you, Delhi know, Times you know, you know what Delhi Times is. But uh, um, I think I'm also very optimist. Uh, I mean, if there is a decay, Hmm. There will be development also. Ah. Like if the, you had Godi uh, media, so now you have digital media hmm. to counter it. So so I think the development will keep happening. Manisha? Oh God, I mean, in some ways I am not very optimistic with regard to the media because the sheer reach that these channels have and the complete media capture, it really makes it hard for citizens to then make valuable democratic choices. For example, Every channel, uh, with the exception of maybe NDTV, India Today to some extent, is defending the Pegasus, you know, project, whatever, so-called snoop, A, by saying that it's fine, all governments do it, and second, by saying that it's a Now, this is what is being told to half the nation. So, so I think, I mean, with these media channels, what's happening is that most of the country and our citizenry is being dulled. And this kind of media capture really allows authoritarians and, you know, governments with authoritarian tendencies to really stay on for very long. So when it comes to media, it's true. Every time you watch television, you know the reach they have. It's very depressing how they come continuously on a nightly basis being dulled out by news anchors. The only Manisha. hope I think truly is digital media because newspapers are still doing a good job. But the kind of reach that video has, and newspapers can't compete with that. So I think the only hope is digital channels that are taking to YouTube, that are taking to other platforms and reaching out to people on their mobile phones and, you know, through internet. Which is why that's you should what, share this that's what, the, that's what the hope is, na? I mean, Manisha, yeah. Manisha's own show has reached over a million people. So, so that's the yeah. hope that I talk about. So, yeah, so, which is why this hafta is free. It's not behind a paywall. Do share it with as many people as you can. It is important you do because uh, the media capture uh, spells doom for democracy. 
Then this email is from Sumit. Sumit says, this week you'll probably talk about the Pegasus and NewsClick controversy. It's an example of how much legacy and conservative media is failing us. As if in unison, Open India and all the Godi media sites and channels launched into NewsClick, which talk, talking about funding from a Sri Lankan, Cuban and China. Guess what? Roy Singham is neither Sri Lankan nor Cuban. He's my American ex-boss, founder of the company I work for even today. ThoughtWorks. Sumit, wow. thank you so much. That's interesting. Actually, you know, everyone's just gone on and said that he's Cuban, Chinese, Sri Lankan. Uh, so um, maybe... You know, and- uh, hey, uh, Sumit, since you're a subscriber and you work for that company, just wait for the connection to be made that News Laundry also <laughs> is connected to... Nexus. Nexus and Nexus. Hmm. But, you know, Arnab, and we were talking about digital media, and Arnab Goswami spent a whole show trashing digital media organizations. And I think it is not just competition or whatever, but he and his bosses and allies of the current government realize what damage digital media can actually do to a very thought-through propaganda bombarding, you know? Yeah. So we are actually the enemy. Uh, I, I think all the uh, digital media... And that's good. That means we doing a good job. All the digital media people, if you can come on the OTT platform, I don't know what the format is going to be. Hmm. Huh. I don't know what the format is going to be. Hmm. Uh, is it one app which can, you know, hmm. give like haystack hmm. so so if we can come on the OTT Something I like think, that. Ah, Let's so I see. think technology is a great level yep. technology can do ah. that then Parthiban says I'm a recent subscriber and living in Australia for the last 30 years you can understand how my knowledge of Indian politics is slightly dated I'm originally from Chennai grew up without knowing much Hindi I'm sure there's a bit of use in your subscriber population therefore I repeat my request I'd sent previously Please avoid lapsing into Hindi during the podcast and if you must, try and paraphrase what was said for the likes of me. One of my main reasons for listening to the Hafta is that it's in English. I've long noticed that Hafta is unapologetically Delhi or North Indian-centered. Political news south of the Vindyas hardly ever makes the discussion. Maybe another podcast uh, with the likes of the News Minute, Dhanya can fill the gap. Hafta panelists also spend too much time on what they are comfortable with. The 40-minute discussion on the death of Dilip Kumar is a case in point. A giant in his field, he may well be while there are more pertinent topics from the South. Venu. Point taken, Venu. Uh, actually, we are planning many things in the South, not just Hafta and podcast, but more on-ground reporters in the South, because that is something that is a huge blind spot and gap for us. Then Calvin D'Souza says, Hi, Anil team. Hope you're well. I would like to know your opinion about a point raised in the below article on the baffler. This, the scream. I think this um, was recommended by Manisha in the last Hafta, wasn't it? Yeah, Mehraj and I have both recommended this. So, yeah, Kalen, of course, we are we know about this because it was recommended and we've all read it. It is about the experience of Muslim journalists in India gradually losing the hope of for the future. One of the points he brings up is how his coverage is emboldening, emboldened Hindutva goons in being violent and brazen. He uses the fact that Bajrang Dal worked, worker being proud of being written about in New York as his coverage has no effect on his future. Do you think that writing about violent Hindutva organizations is counterproductive? And only emboldens them. Or is a perspective we are not seeing. Callan, very good question. This is something that even we've discussed internally. While, uh, you know, in the edit meetings that I see where Ramansa was discussing with a few reporters. That on the one hand, if you cover this, it gives the guy the attention that he wants. On the other hand, if you don't, then it has a similar effect that people don't know how, how brazen things are becoming. So I think it's a case-to-case basis. because Especially if that person gets the backing of the establishment, my personal view is it must be covered even if it gives them attention. 
because the moment the establishment gives him credibility you have to call it out but yeah it's it's always a difficult call but i think it's case to case manisha and raman sir what do you think it is case to case that's how we decide i also don't want to you know give uh, unnecessary attention to such rogue uh, characters uh, so we pick up our cases we are very careful about it and then we do our stories manisha you have I you think it is absolutely case to case and i think us not reporting is not going to make the problem vanish so whether we report on violent hindutva or not violent hindutva is there to exist so as journalists we may as well do our job and no i believe in i believe in individual contributions there is one interesting i mean just to illustrate with an example so for example when danish siddiqui's news came there were these uh, accounts that were trending a lot of hateful abusive stuff now we didn't we didn't amplify those in a report we chose not to put out a report saying that he's being targeted by trolls because when we looked at some of the profiles of the trolls these are bots these are unknown people they're hateful they're bigoted and at that point there were a lot more people condo- uh, you know offering condolences and remembering danish for the wonderful photojournalist that he was than the hate out there and none of these guys were it wasn't coming from any of the blue tick right wing influencers at least at the initially so we thought there is no point amplifying hatred on a day which brought us so much sad news and then because there were far more people commemorating him so i do think that sometimes when we look to social media too much that you know oh two trolls have said something three trolls have said something i am not for amplifying that you have to see what those social media accounts are whether they are being followed by the pm or not whether they have the states backing like abhinandan said or whether they are influencers in their domain other than that i think yeah just any yes, hateful okay. post not be amplified right now this is from v aroda hi i'm a relatively new subscriber from sydney australia just the point on data journalism speaking from experience of working in similar intelligence units quote unquote their job is not to prepare graphs for journalists to publish they are specialists experts in subjects like managing data assets developing data lineage data pipelines maintaining data platforms creating data visualizations etc etc et to ultimately enable the journalists to perform self service analytics For example, I work in data governance. My guess is it is not that big in India at all based on the discussion. However, here in Australia we have some excellent data journalism happening and analytics is hot everywhere, government included. It's quite obvious that the commentator Vivek has absolutely no understanding that while these intelligence units in these spaces what they really do. It's not at all what he is describing. Many thanks Vikram. So Vikram yeah, point taken I think what data journalism is being touted as in some ways in india it's just become this buzzword that everybody says i'm a data journalist uh, you know as opposed to what but yeah what you're talking about is data as a specialization in fact indian data portal has been set up by the indian school of business where you can get data on agriculture they've started off with agriculture but you'll get it on anything and that can really help a reporter in visualizations etc we also use it in in fact in the who owns your media that's data who owns yeah. how many shares etc but Uh, but yeah in many organizations it's just become this buzzword which doesn't do what you're describing but yeah point taken i agree on that note quickly recommendations uh, raman sir olympics okay now olympics of course and uh, one show which i so i'm i'm really huge fan of alan woody so i just saw alan versus pharaoh uh, it's a it's a documentary on uh, disney hotstar uh, that the controversy that he had uh, abused the daughter Uh, really an eye opener and how well they make their uh, you know documentaries i must say and anyone who worships alan woody and alan woody's movies must watch it okay manisha 
One is a Washington Post piece. Somebody has to do the dirty work. NSO founders defend the spyware they built. Uh, it's a very fascinating profile of NSO founders and NSO. Uh, the Guardian podcast on Project Pegasus is excellent. They've released four parts now. So I think anyone who's interested in this must read it. It's uh, must uh, listen to it. It's about a 20 minute podcast. The one on the Mexican journalist is very, very interesting and hits home. Uh, I also would urge you to please read our piece on uh, by Nidhi Suresh and Supriti on uh, the confusion created around the list, how usual suspects twisted the words of a poor Israeli journalist for their you know, motives. And I think as a journalist and also as consumers of news, it's true that the origins of the list is of deep interest. In fact, even for me, the first question is, what is this list? So it's very natural for all of us to be asking questions on it. But we should just remember that the source and the whistleblowers have to be protected. And this piece will kind of give you an idea of why there's confusion and how it's important to look at how organizations are wording this list. So to me, that's quite fascinating. So please read this piece and please share it. Right. Uh, my recommendation is do read all the Pegasus-related stories on in The Wire. Also, do read Pegasus-related story in our uh, news laundry because we have some interesting takes and information on that as well. We have an explainer also by Meghnaad and um, we have uh, we had a live discussion with two women journalists also who featured on the list. So you can watch that on our YouTube channel. Yes, that the explainer that's on a YouTube channel. You can go to youtube.com slash newslaundry and the other recommendation is an NPR Planet Money podcast which is fascinating. I was just blown away that this is happening. It's called Video Gaming the System. Uh, it talks about um, how the video game economy inside, not the real economy, but you know the the points that you earn in inside a video game, how they were being traded outside by a whole lot of people in Venezuela because the economy they just crashed and they had no money. It's really sad, and I do think I mean I I love these guys, uh, you know the the hosts of Planet Money. They have some new people. This is by Amanda, Aron Zink, and Erica. Beras, I do think they could have been a little more sympathetic to the Venezuelans who were ruining the video game. But yeah, it's it's a fascinating case study. On that note, uh, I would like to thank the panel and I would like to uh, thank all the subscribers. Please share this hafta far and wide. It is a free hafta. It is discussing some very important things. Encourage others to subscribe. Last week, we saw a huge dip in subscriptions. I don't know why. Uh, many of you did not renew your subscription. Please do. You can read the kind of articles on government ads to see how media will completely die, journalism will die, as will democracy, if you don't support it and you only leave it to advertisers. So I urge you to please subscribe and pay to keep news free. And if we are on the Pegasus watch list and you're listening, you guys can also log on to newsround.com, click on the subscribe button and pay to keep news free. Meanwhile, for all the Godi media and people denying that any hack has happened, this song goes out to you.
all the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel.